Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Doable Discipleship. You are listening to our special series right now on race, ethnicity, and the gospel. Today, um, we have a really exciting conversation coming up. But first, this is the Doable Discipleship podcast, a show that helps you grow and designed to deepen your faith in God. I'm Brandon Robinson, and I'm joined today by... Jason Whelan. Hey, guys. Jason Whelan almost missed his cue, but that's all right. <laughs> I, I always almost miss the cue. I'm, I'm literally always a second behind where I should be. <laughs> all good. And we have another really special guest. Um, we are joined today by Eugene Robinson. Now, Eugene Robinson is a 16-year NFL veteran, played for the Seahawks, uh, for the Green Bay Packers, and also for the Atlanta Falcons and Carolina Panthers, has been to three Pro Bowls and three Super Bowls, and actually won the Super Bowl in 1996 with the Green Bay Packers. All of that is really good, really cool, but he's super special to me because he's also my dad. Yeah! So today, <laughs> exactly, all the football stuff is great, but today we're joined by my dad, so I'm really excited for this conversation. Dad, say hello. I'm doing well. How you doing, guys? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just impressed hello. how you knew all those stats off the top of your head, Brandon. That was I got great. more. I got more. <laughs> that was, that was very impressive. You're, you were making dad proud. Good job. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes, indeed. Thank you. All right. We are so excited to have you here today. Um, so we have been in this series, as you know, we've been talking about um, – race and the gospel and reconciliation and all this great stuff. And so we were excited to dig into that with you, but we would be completely remiss if we didn't have an NFL related question too. So we want to start with that. And then we're going to get a little bit deeper into this stuff. But the first question, what was it like when you entered the NFL and then when you retired. What were some of the major ways that you grew in that time? You were in the NFL for 16 years. And so what were some of the, just the major ways that you grew in that time? Well, I was ex extremely scared when I first got in the National Football League. Um, I wasn't that big. I was pretty small, um, maybe weighed about 178 pounds. I went to a team that was pretty well-established, Seattle Seahawks, and they had a secondary that was a beast. They had mm. Dave Brown, John Harris, Ken Easley, who's a Hall of Famer. Um, they had some guys who can just flat out play some football. And then <laughs> I enter that and no one talked to you as a rookie. No one said a word to you. It was a different culture so that you, I ate by myself and, and sometimes with some other guys, but I, you didn't really, with the veterans, you did, really didn't uh, converse with the veterans at all. You had to make the team and be a part of the club before they would actually talk to you. Well, I ended up making a team. Um, they had no practice squad back then. It was only like eight, nine guys that oh. they had in secondary. I made the team. And um, the best thing that ever happened to me was God put me with a guy named Dave Brown. He, hmm. he passed away um, in the National Football League. He, uh, but he was my mentor. He was a guy who taught me about um, how to walk with Jesus. And then he taught me so much football. And I spent every Wednesday, Thursday, before I was married at this guy's house, breaking down film, learning how to play the game. And, and before I even actually got a really good shot of it, a really good, um, you know, I'm on a bench, but to really actually play, I was, I was in this, this tutelage and academic process that I would, I would never, ever skip. I wouldn't skip for my life right now because it taught me how to study film and how to watch film and what to look for. And, on the bench, I would call out plays, and I started to get really, really good. 
And guys, mm-hmm. how do you know that? I'm spending so much time at Dave Brown's house learning about Jesus, learning about the word of God, and learning about how to play professional football. And it paid off. You mentioned the Super Bowls. Uh, I, you know, I've, I've gotten a lot of interceptions. I became one of those leading people in the National Football League. And I had no idea that I was slowly becoming that person. I was just having a great time, having fun, um, just enjoying enjoying life and enjoying playing football. And I had no idea that I was considered among the best. But God, I thought, really used that platform to elevate me in the National Football League so that when people would see me, they would see Jesus Christ, bar none. I would tell you that. I tell you that to everybody. That's what the reason why I was playing professional football for those many years. Well, that's incredible. Also another that, that's fun so, fact. Yeah, go ahead. Just in the off seasons, when you first got into the league, you also worked at a software company. <laughs> yeah. You didn't think you were going to make the team. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I worked, I, I, I wrote software. I'm a, I'm a computer science person. Um, I majored in computer science. I went to Colgate University. And so I wrote software because I did not believe I would keep the job. Football is such a transient job, man. You can sure. only have it for 3.2 years. And that's it. I, I lasted 16 years. And so uh, yeah, I man. knew that my time was going to be up, and I better be able to do something else. I was newly married, and I want to make sure I was able to support my wife at the time. Had no kids at that time. Um, but I was making sure that football didn't work out. I was doing computer science, baby. And I was Microsoft was down there, Nintendo's down there. I, I, I was in the in the right place <laughs> to do software. That's right. And I, I think that's I think what's so special is that idea that you had a mentor who took you under his wing, who uh, who and said, I'm going to invest in that guy. So this is doable discipleship. I don't want to miss that for all the other stuff that we're going to be talking about. Uh, I, that it's so important that if you have been around, if, if you are a veteran, if you have, take that time to take some newer people under your wing, spend the time with them, invest in them, because you, you probably, I'm sure that Dave had no idea the impact that he was going to have, and not just on your career, but for the kingdom in the time that he was spending with you. So time spent as a mentor and investing is never wasted time. And that's time that God is going to use for his purposes too. So I think that's so cool. And thank you for sharing that. I'm, I, I love hearing about it and I could listen to it all day to be quite honest. (laughs) Amen. That's awesome. Um, So obviously dad, I I have, I have backstory, but what was it like for you growing up so we know 1985 you go to the seattle seahawks all that's great that's a long ways away from hartford connecticut where you grew up so (laughs) what was it like for you growing up in your neighborhood in your environment what were those experiences like see i didn't realize that i was poor because i had a mom and dad and my mom and dad took care of us uh four kids the best they could and we were having my community stowe village the area was named after Harriet Beecher Stowe. This area that I, I, I grew up in, it was indeed a community where other families looked out for you. And if I was acting crazy in the street, which you didn't, you had other ever par- parents could have permission to to spank you. I mean, <laughs> spank you, send you home, and they'll let you know, yeah, I spanked you. And so from that standpoint, we had a community of people around us, and I had no idea. That's when the time when integration was happening, and I remember my mother not allowing me to be integrated, the forced busing that was going on, and I was gonna get bussed out. She said no, and I remember I was like maybe 
kindergarten, first grade, that I had an opportunity to do that, and my mom declined the opportunity. Mm-hmm. I love being in the public school. I love the 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 knowledge I gained. I was always fascinated with um, learning. I was I, I was a kind of a nerd, if you will, uh, egghead, uh, academics, vocabulary words, all that stuff meant up to me. And then I played sports, and I, I I grew up. All of us grew up in the neighborhood of playing sports. And I wasn't the best at all. There was no, my brother was the best. My cousin was the best. I just happened to be a guy that was hanging around them, trying to outdo them and whatnot. I was always too small. Um, The neighborhood I came to, there's a lot of people who didn't make it out of that neighborhood. Mm. Um, It was very, very tough. But I didn't know how tough it was. Still, you got drugs and still you got all the things. Gangs were not like they are now because they had sticks and bats and things of that nature. They didn't really rock with guns, but now it's a totally different thing. But it was really polarized and territorial in the neighborhood that I grew up in. Mm. It was Hispanic, there was black, there was Jamaican, and there was everybody had that like their little side and stuff. And the only thing that was the common denominator was when you played the sport, because that's when you kind of really, really intermingled mm. uh, other than school, but you really intermingled there. So I had a really good childhood. I had no idea that I was poor. I just knew I was absolutely loved. And I wanted to learn as much as I could. And graduated from uh, Weaver High School. And then I went to Colgate University. And I graduated third in my class. And um, I was a pretty smart student. Got an academic scholarship to Colgate University. But going from an all-black school to an all-white school, what? You talk about shock. Man, totally different because now all the stereotypes that I would encounter, well, guess what? I encountered all those stereotypes. Hmm. What was it like for you? So you described there's where you grew up. There was a black section, Hispanic section. uh, There's a white section. What was it? What were some of the formative um, experiences for you growing up in that neighborhood with other ethnicities, other cultures? Um, even law enforcement, like how did all of this come together in your neighborhood and how did that shape you? Well, law enforcement would parole the neighborhood uh, and I had no idea why they would parole. That was their beat, but obviously they were paroling the neighborhood. Um, the other thing is that we would play sports and we would play sports. It was really kind of like say, cultural and polarized because we would play against the Hispanics, the black kids play against the Hispanic kids. And after the game, depending on who won or lost, there would sometimes be fights. Hmm. All right. So you had that type of situation. There was sometimes we would be playing with our friends and having a good time. And there would be an argument that would happen in the neighborhood that would reverberate into the field. And then if you happen to be on a different side, like, if my sister happened to be fighting one of your sisters and we had just friends and we having a good time playing ball, then it was almost duty bound that we had to go ahead and fight. I mean, that makes no, absolutely no sense at all. But inside of all that, I can tell you how it was a community. I don't know how, but it was, we still would go out with families and, and go to picnics and go on, go to the park and stuff. And I remember doing that with different families, the Collintons and, and the Joneses. I, I can remember doing that, uh, the Claytons. We all went out and had good times together. Um, but it was it, it's, it was a different time. No cell phones, nothing. You were inside, you were outside, you were outside with your friends, and you stayed outside with your friends. So those were the, the times that we um, talk about. Mm. Yeah. So, um, here, this one thing I remember, um, and this is probably 
when we get into all the race stuff. Sure. Me and my good friend, my other best friend, his name is Reggie, and his and another friend, his name is Juni. And we're we're incredible students, all three of us, incredible mm-hmm. students. Well, we were we were going out to a party, all dressed really nice in a fine suit and all the other stuff and whatnot. And as we went out, we were coming back from this party. Um, someone had particularly robbed this store. I don't know. We go in the store, we got our candy and stuff, and we're going back to our car. And then we get surrounded by police officers. Hmm. And as we get surrounded by the police officers, apparently we matched the description of whoever was robbing the, robbing the store. Now, mind you, there's three of us, we're, we're dressed totally differently. We're not trying to escape. We're not trying to run anywhere. And the officer who got involved, officer, I forget his name, Officer Dan, who got involved, he was rude, he was mean, he was not nice at all. And this is what I learned, my first experience with the police that I learned here that I tell my kids. My friend Junie was always going like, hey man, no, he was being combative to let him know his rights. And me and my other friend was like, hey, shut up. We're trying to make it out of here alive, man. We ain't trying to go ahead and, we're trying to make it out of here alive. You know, you be quiet. I need you to go ahead and be quiet because we want to make it out here alive. And it was so odd in this deal because this guy was being really, really mean, really, really um, belligerent. And then he put us in the back of the car. He didn't handcuff us, but he put us all in the back of the car, which was really tiny. Hmm. And as we're there, we hear over the, the, the bulletin that, oh, these kids are honor students. And then he let us go. And then we said, hey, I need your badge number. Uh, who are you? This and that. I need your badge number. Well, he gave it, but he could have really diffused that and made a great impression on three young, impressionable young men if he was nice, if he mm. was kind. He, he wasn't, though. And I know he has a job to do, but it was one person that robbed, not three people that robbed the, ba- uh, robbed the store. And you got three people who have robbed the store who are still hanging out, who are yeah. still, yeah, who are actually still hanging out and just... We're not trying to go anywhere. We're not trying to flee anything. And you can also talk to people in there and we don't even match the description. But that, none of that stuff meant anything to him. Hmm. And incidentally, my best friend who became a correctional officer, that officer ended up being a dirty cop. And he ended up going into, into that same prison system. And my best friend, the night that he arrested us, some 20 years later, sees that guy in there and says, hey, Officer Dan, you don't know who I am, but you arrested my friends when we were we were really young, put us in a car, very, very rude, this and that. He said, I could do something here that could be very, very punitive to you. He said, I could let people know that you are a cop in here. And if I let them know that you are a cop in this, in this place, you would be lunch me. He said, but I won't treat you the way that you treated us. I'm going to treat you with respect, and I'm going to conceal your identity. Hmm. He hmm. did that for a man who you could say who didn't deserve it, I don't know that he could say he's getting his comeuppance. I don't know, but he protected him, even though that man did not protect us or had even a concern about what we felt about as being kids and how this would leave a major impression on our life. I've never forgot that. So I tell my son, well, we don't get to that anyway. (laughs) Exactly. So, so we'll get to that. So with your experience um, and with, the current cultural moment that we're in right now in the United States, and I'd say even global, um, when we look at this current discussion, when we think about George mm-hmm. Floyd, 
or mm. Ahmaud Arbery or uh, Breonna Taylor. Um, we've been looking at race in the gospel and all this from the lens of young married couple. We've had a discussion with a pastor, um, but as a parent for you, you know, raising me and Brittany, that's my sister's name. Um, what was that like for you raising us and what, what were some of the values um, that you wanted to instill in us? Those incidents have so colored my world as far as and shaped who I am. Um, 17 years old, uh, back then me and my three friends and I talked about the story. Um, being a professional player down in Atlanta where I'm going to the grocery store to pick up groceries, uh, going out my gated apartment community, go back in through the back gate of the community. And the fact that it was already open, another car was going in. As I follow that car in, get out my car to go up. I'm confronted by that driver, older white man, talking about I don't belong in the neighborhood. You came in the back of his car. Who are you trying to go see? Who are you going to drive out? So that has always colored my world, being pulled over by a police officer for not speeding just because my tenant windows were dark. I didn't buy to put the tent on it in the first place. But I got pulled over, said I was speeding, and I was nice, kind, let him do his job, let him do his job, let him do his job. He was belligerent, angry, and he hit me with every fine he could hit me with. Tenant windows. Your license and registration at the time didn't, uh, you can have them separately done. Uh, now you have to do them at the same time. And I had one of them. Well, he hit me with everything you could hit me. I came out of like four or 500 bucks worth of, of fines. And I wasn't even speeding. I put it on, I put it on what's name. So that's colored my world. So mm -hmm. now, am I angry at the cops? No, I got friends who are cops who have to do a job. But what do I tell my kids? If you get pulled over, you are to be compliant. Don't make any sudden moves. Brennan, I want you to make sure I am, I'm reaching for my registration. Here is my license. I want them to see your hands. I want them to see everything about you because I need to get you home. I don't need them to make a stick talking about, yeah, because without cell phone evidence or without the stuff that we've seen with Ahmad and not the stuff that we've seen with George Floyd, not other stuff, it's just your word against them. And then you, you can't, you can't beat that blue wall. You're not going to beat that blue wall. You're not. The police has a, a tight knit. And so I'm like, look, I don't care if it's your fault. I don't care what is going on. I just need to have you home. So I need you to comply. And whatever you have to do to comply, just go ahead and comply with them because I got to get you home safely. Because I don't want to, I, I don't need to prove a point now. I'll prove the point later. I'll prove the point when I, we, we can. Mm -hmm. One of the things, uh, so I, I remember being about maybe 13 or 14. I don't even think I was driving. <laughs> no, you weren't. I wasn't driving yet. But that was a formative moment for me, um, thinking about the talk. And when I say the talk, I don't mean that in terms of the sex talk. Um, it was the talk in terms of what you just said. If you are to be pulled over, this is how you are perceived put your hands on the steering wheel, make no sudden movements, make sure you have good eye contact, make sure you announce beforehand and move slowly before you just go to grab your license or before you go to grab the registration, which may be in the glove compartment, because all of that is unknown. And I remember you kind of shaping it and trying to help me at a, at a young age. I, I really had no context for driving or, um, a police, really, I didn't have much of a context, but I remember thinking, huh, 
those are a lot of steps. Those are, that's a lot to remember. Um, why can't I just grab in my back pocket or why can't I just reach over to the glove compartment and just grab, grab whatever I need out. And you are trying to explain to me, no, 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 no. It's not that simple. Um, there is a history in our country where, um, black men. And I'm at the time I'm, I'm changing from my boyish looks into a young man. Um, and you were kind of trying to explain to me, you are not going to be perceived the same way as the, the little kid with baby fat still on his cheeks. You're turning into a man and, and you look different and there, because you look different and because you are a young black man, um, there's a history of that being seen as a threat or inherently violent or, um, things of that nature. So when you get pulled over, this is the protocol. Um, and I remember that really shaping me. Another thing I remember shaping me, I was at this time a little older, maybe 16 or 17 years old. I'm starting to drive now. And my cousin and I, we, we want to go to the mall <laughs> and, we want, and we want to get some clothes. We want to go to the mall. Um, and we just come downstairs. we got our clothes on. We think, you know, our outfits, we think we're killing it. And no. you stopped us right before we got to the door <laughs> and you were like, Oh no, take that off. Take all that off. All that stuff off. Why, why did you, what was it that made you say, Nope, you can't go out. Take like off that. the hoodie. See, I mean, I get Kanye West. I get the whole thing because you were into that whole stuff and yeah. he had the scarf and things of that nature and whatnot. I'm like, look, I need, I don't need you wearing a hoodie. I don't need you wearing a scarf. I don't need you being mistaken at all for a gang member, whether you're mistaken from by a gang or you're mistaken by the police. I don't need you to make that mistake. So look, this is what I need to do. I need you to go ahead and put on some 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 jeans and put on a nice little polo shirt and put on something that's you dress yourself down and you look a little bit more as if you're in school. They have protocol at Charlotte Christian of wearing what you wear uh, in uniform. I need you looking like that because I can't have you go out here and someone say, oh yeah, because he's a thug, looks like a thug, and we're profiling you, and you look the part now that you are the part, when you could be the furthest thing from it, and you're the furthest thing from it. And so I'm like, no, no, no. You and my nephew, no. I tell you what you will do, you're going to take off that hoodie, and you're going to take off the scarf, or you ain't going nowhere. We were mad at you, too. Oh, yeah, it worked, but that's all I, right. You were, you, you were killing the swag big time. Oh, but, yeah, I was um, killing it. <laughs> but it... it you're right. It, it, what it, I think it does say is that you had an understanding and knowledge to a world that at that time we, we had no idea. Um, so I remember those things being two, two formative experiences for me um, in parenting or just being on the receiving end of parenting and you trying to explain, hey, there's a, I know you, your mother knows you. But there's a big world with a lot of history, a lot of nasty, ugly history that doesn't know you. And I can't afford you to be mistaken for somebody or something that you're not. Um, so you're going to have to try a little bit harder and play a different part so that these things don't happen. And let me just say this. I, I also said, not if you get pulled over. I said, when you get pulled over, when you get pulled over, Brandon, this is what you're going to do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think... <clears throat> Yeah, I think that's I think that's so interesting and important because you're talking about the difference between how you know Brandon is or how you know your nephew is. So what you know of them versus what could be seen of them. And I think that's 
something that's a part of this conversation that we've been having on this show for the last few weeks and whatnot is looking at how you are viewing people and making assumptions or making judgments just by appearance. And that's, and that's something that we've been talking about, you know, versus the difference of seeing them for their intrinsic value and seeing them in light of grace and seeing people in light of, you know, how God sees each and every person and then getting to know them before you start to make sorts of judgments about character or judgments about, you know, intention or, or whatever it is. And um, yeah, I, I think it's, it seems to me like that's kind of the heart. And I, I love your heart as a parent was always my priority is to get you back into our home safely. My priority is to make sure that you come home. And, you know, it's like, I understand that I'm asking things of you that other parents don't have to ask of their kids, but we have to make sure that that priority one is keeping you safe and healthy. Yeah, and if you, we have you, to make adjustments to do that, then so be it. I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, as a parent, I'm, I'm a parent. I mean, I love yeah. my, I love my kids. Every, every parent loves their kids. All right. And what would, what I mean, would Brandon's you do okay, for your kids? But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But what would you do for your kids? I mean, every parent, you know, you, you love your kids and you want the best for your kids and you, you will break your back for your kids. And for all the things and opportunity that you want to be able to give them. All right. You don't want that derailed or stopped or impeded at all because of stuff that's beyond their control. So please pull you over. All right. I, I want him to be respectful. I hope that he's good. But if he's not, I said, and that does happen. And let's not admit, I don't want white people to think this, that that doesn't happen. Like this is yeah. a figment of just black people imagination. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I'm not saying that, look, people are criminal whether they're black or white, brown, totally get it. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that I'm saying, but systematically we've seen stuff that has been disproportionately unfair for those people of color. Sure. And for people who are there to protect and serve, we've seen that. And the inequity, the slap in the face, the, you know, for, for you to, for people to say, oh man, you, you'll be all right. Or just, I mean, or, or that the black life doesn't matter. It's not, I'm not, dude, I'm telling you, there is a system that is against us. I said, and it's been inherent for a very, very long time. And as a black man, I'm just trying to go ahead and stay above water. And I'm trying to keep my family safe. Whatever I need to do necessary to keep them safe. But I don't want you to think that that doesn't exist or that is a figment of my imagination or that it doesn't happen, you know, systematically to black people. It does. It does. And that's why you got such an uproar right now uh, over George Floyd death because I'm a wrestling coach. I taught Brennan how to wrestle. If I put you in a move and I put you in a move for, let's say, 20 seconds, I could put you in a move for 20 seconds and I guarantee you, you would tap out immediately. Mm -hmm. Eight minutes and 46 seconds. Let it resonate. Let that sit. Eight minutes and 46 seconds. That's a long time. Yeah. That's a long time. And I'm a coach and I, it, it boggles my mind that the other officers won't say, it's like, hey, dude, you know when something's 
illegal or legal move. You know that. I, I'm not dumb. We all, we're, we're adults. We, and so when we, when we see that, I'm going, is, it is such a miscarriage of justice and such an egregious, it's a, such a slap in the face. And I'm glad to see so many black, white, brown people protesting. You know what? Because that just tells me that there's a, a tide that's maybe changing that yeah. I'm liking. Yeah. Brandon, what were your thoughts when your dad gave you the talk versus what you think about it kind of now? I'm just curious. Yeah, no, that's a good question. So um, at the time, I'm still, I'm still a kid. I'm like coming into high school. Um, I might still be in middle school, eighth grade. I'm not sure. But um, at the time, my world was really small. Right. So if you go to school, you come home or you play a sport, you come home, do your homework and then go to bed and you get up, go back to school. And then you have the weekend, you play Xbox and you have a really narrow worldview. Um, And you have like your 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 friends at school, you have your system. um, But outside of that, you don't really have much context for the larger world or the the larger narrative in the world. Um, So a lot of this changed for me, or I wouldn't, I don't want to say changed for me. A lot of this, I feel like a lot of that knowledge was activated as I've gotten older and as I've become a man and as I've had my own experiences and as I've been pulled over and as, as I've had my own experiences, my own understanding as I've gotten older, it's almost like a callback to, Oh my gosh, I remember that time. I remember when, um, I was 13 and my dad was giving me the talk. I remember when he, stopped me before I, my cousin and I, we walked out of the house and we we're going to go to the mall. I remember when he said, no, you can't wear that. You got to take that off. You need to put on something more like this. I re- all of these kind of experiences and talks um, come flooding back into your mind as you get older. Uh, so now for me, I'd say it's more of a, um, I'm trying to find the right word for it. It it feels more like a, I think trauma is the best word. And this is what I mean by that. Um, When you have something that is out of your dad's experience passed on to you, and then you have an experience that validates that. um, And then when you can kind of go back up the line and go, okay, well, my dad's dad, Samuel Blake Robinson, he has experiences that he's given to Eugene Robinson, who's my dad, who Eugene Robinson then passes on to me and says, hey, this has been my experience because I love you. You need to look out for this or you should look like this or you should be doing these things. And this is for your safety. As you kind of trace that thread, you start to go, man, this is generational. Um, this is an isolated event. And I think that's been a big reason when we think about George Floyd, when we hear that name, um, I think I said this last time with AC, but I'll say it again, is it's not just about George Floyd. It's not just about lionizing George Floyd. It's about humanizing George Floyd. And what George Floyd represents to a large section of the Black community is it's not an isolated event. It triggers the generational trauma and it triggers the stories that you've heard. It triggers the experiences that you had um, that you don't necessarily walk around with every day. It doesn't dominate your thought pattern, but it does shape you. It does form you. And a lot of times these experiences, you kind of put them on a shelf because they're painful and you go, I don't, 
like thinking about that. Um, but when you see these things, when you see uh, what happens to George Floyd on camera, when you see it, Ahmaud Arbery, when you, you get to see it, it changes the way it takes it off of that shelf, whether you want it to be off the shelf or not, whether you want to think about it, engage with it or not. And then it kind of, it brings back all of these, the different experiences, the experience of your father or your mother or your grandparents or their parents. Um, and it just kind of feels like a weight that sits on you and you have to sift through it again um, and make meaning and find purpose in it. And that is uh, an exhaustive work to do. Mm, yeah. Mm, that's good. Well said. Yeah. So, so we talked about how you, um, parented and talked with your kids um, as they were growing up. How do you continue to be a mentor to your kids now, especially with everything that's been going on um, as of recent? You know, the Bible says train up a child in the way they should go that when they're older, they won't depart. And there's been a lot of training that's been happening early. Mm-hmm. Well, the, um, not only the biblical training, but then we talk about just the street common sense training, if you cultural. will, cultural training. There's a, a lot of training. And you do that at that time specifically so that when you get to a time like this, you can look at the fruit of it and not be worried about how do I continue to mentor Brandon Robinson? Yeah. Because the mentorship happened and the discipleship happened when they were young. The discipleship happened when he was a baby and I would take him down and when my wife was nursing and I would give her a break and then at night I would take him down and I would pray over him and play and play commission, some gospel music. And I would play music and we have a, we have like a little praise and worship time. He didn't even know. Yeah. And I would be praying over him and praying over him and praying over him and praying over him. He had no idea. I did the same thing for my daughter. That was a time of mentorship. Those were the times of, of laying a foundation and, and, and putting in that work and putting in that work and putting that work so that now that he wants to be and he is a pastor down at Saddleback Church, it don't surprise me. I already knew. <laughs> I already knew that because that's something that we spoke about when he was a little baby. All right. That was something that we, we talked about, about what God would do with his life and in and the direction he would go, whether he played football or not. I said, God, he's your guy. This is your guy. Right here, you use them for your glory, and how do you want to use them? So how do I continue to mentor him? I've entrusted in him what was entrusted to me, the Word of God. And the same thing with my, my daughter. And I know that when I'm absent and when I can't be with him, I know that the one guiding principle that will always guide his life is the love of Jesus Christ that's in his heart and the acceptance that he made a long time ago when he was young. And the same thing with my daughter. Whether they become wayward, whether they move off, it's not the mentorship has already happened because I can't be with you all the time, but the Lord can be with you all the time. And the Holy Spirit is with you all the time. It resides in, in you. And that's the mystery, the mystery of God. And that's one of the reasons how we're able to withstand and go through this hurt that our nation is going through because of what I'm talking about right now. So it's not really a mentorship of me speaking into Brandon's life right now because mm-hmm. Brandon's doing a lot of speaking already into so many different lives. And I'm sitting there going, I said, man, you're wise beyond your years, man. Dude, you're so authentic. You're so real. You're, man, you're so, man, you are so God. You are so God. And that's something that happened for he and my daughter and my wife that we made it a, a part. We made it a part of what we would do is train them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hmm. I think, well, for both Brittany and I, my sister, like we're, we're older now. 
we're both in our 30s. So know, yes. it, it changes the nature of the relationship. It changes the nature of the conversation. It's no longer like, sit down, let me, <laughs> let me tell you this, sit down, I need to, you know, family meeting time. It's more of as we hang out in conversation. Yes. I am, you're not necessarily directly saying, um, directly like imparting wisdom to me. If you ever heard that expression, like wisdom is caught, not taught. Mm -hmm. Um, it's more, I'm catching it from situational things, from conversations here and there. And then I, I, you know, it kind of sparks and it's like, oh, that was, that was really wise. I'm going to hold on to that. So I think the mentorship, it still happens, but it's not a, it's, it feels more indirect. It's not a, so much a, uh, direct sit down at the table. Let me explain things to you. Let's sit down at the table. Let me, Mm -hmm. um, let me share this with you. So yeah, yeah. It, it just, as we get older, the nature of the relationship changes. Um, and, I'm lear- and I'm learning from you too, by the way, Brandon. I'm learning from you. You exactly. have no idea. I'm learning from you. I'm learning about, just, I'm watching you with, you with your family and with your wife. And I'm watching you, how you, how you conduct your business. Even I, I get to hear some of your calls that you guys are on. I'm going like this, man, this dude is, man, this dude is doing it, man. You're, you're doing, you're doing what I would expect you to do, which is a, to serve Lord, the Lord in this capacity and to let him use you big time. And that's exactly what, what you are doing. And so if I offer like a little wisdom or like, Brendan, do you think of this when you talk about this decision or that decision? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that's more, that's a little bit more what it is as opposed, I'm just a dad right now who love having a son home and go like this, yo, man, let's go play some golf, man. Let's go hang out. I want to hang out with you, man, because I don't get a chance to do this. Yeah. And and that's where the mentorship maybe comes into is we get to hang out and we hang Spend out in a different, not as father and son, which we are, but as brothers in Christ and as good friends. Yeah, as friends, as yeah. peers, it just, it just changes. And for, you, for those of you guys who don't know, um, my family lives in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I'm out in California now. So quite a, quite a distance. So the times we have to be back, it's fun to hang out. Yes. Dad, um, when you think about all this and when we think about hope and the outcome of this, what do you want the world to look like? What do you want America to look like um, for me and Brittany, but also for your future grandkids? What's the hope? You know, um, this is the hope. I think there's two parts to that question. There's too many, too many veins in that too many veins that you go down that question. One is the hope and what is the reality? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, the hope is that I pray that this world would recognize and see what's happened with Floyd and what's happening with Aubrey, what's happened with Deanna Taylor, what's happened with Trayvon Martin, what's happened with uh, Mike Brown. I pray that they see that. And not only is it legislation, but I think there's a change of heart. And I think this becomes a change of heart that is so noticeable that it, permeates every facet of your life, your job, your school, your, uh, your hobbies, it permeates everything. That would be my hope. The protests, I pray that the protests are not in vain. That would be my hope. I pray that uh, many hearts will be changed. That would be my hope. Now, here's the reality. The Bible says, in this world, you should have much tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Why would you have much tribulation? Because this world is evil. This world is evil. This world is sin, evil. Sin in the world. Is it? That's it. And this world is also passing away, the Bible declares. And so from that standpoint, I know that you're going to have times like this. 
it's going to be travailing and chaotic and, 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 and really problematic times and chaotic. And it's going to be times like that because the Bible speaks of that. And that's why the Bible says that you got to know Jesus Christ. You've got to have the Holy Spirit so that you are able to deal with what's going on. You can have the comfort of God that the Bible talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, that the comfort of God can help you in these very difficult times. So I think my expectation and my hope is this utopia, this great thing, this, this life learned lessons that you do this and all that other stuff. But the reality in me and the realist in me know that this is a fallen world and that God gave us the Holy Spirit and God wants to keep us so close to him. And God tells us that this world is not our home. And so as I contemplate that and I think about that, I'm going to be good. I'm going to be kind. I'm going to be nice to this. But I realize that this world does not belong to me. Yeah. And I think so it's important to understand the reality of the world that we live in. We live in a fallen world. We live in a sinful world. Um, but hope for the church, hope for us as believers in Jesus, um, as followers of Jesus, the hope is that I think that we could be a foretaste and a light of the, hey, to the, to the world that's broken and falling, this is what justice looks like. This is what reconciliation looks like. This is what it looks like when these two things meet and come together. This is a new community, a new family, the family of God. This is the better way forward. Uh, this is what life in God's kingdom looks like right here, right now. So sin is always going to be a kind of part has, has corrupted the foundation of our world. And we know that we live in a fallen world. And obviously we await the second coming of Jesus when he comes back and makes everything right. When he straightens everything out. Um, however, I think the privilege for us as believers in Christ is that we now get to be, uh, we get to go first and we get to be the, the, the first, the foretaste of this new family, um, and these new, the, the people of God, uh, experience in restoration, redemption, reconciliation now uh, before that second coming and that we can truly be a light uh, in our culture and, you know, that, that, that city on a hill, so to speak, for our country and for our world. Yeah, uh, we'll agree. I, yeah, I think you said that great. I think there's a, a lot of hope to be had and hope for revival Yeah, for the church, hope for um, a revival for what it means to have true fellowship hope for revival what it means to truly evangelize all peoples hope for what it means to like have genuine growth in discipleship i think i think we're in this kind of period where revival is not only possible but it's necessary so that's something that that i'm excited to see and hopefully it continues that's what happens right yeah I think I think that's that's a big part Absolutely. of the prayer. Prayer for revival. Okay. Um I told you that we were going to be doing a lightning round. So okay. Are you ready for the lightning round? Ready for the lightning round. Okay. Let Drum roll. me Drum roll. <laughs> Let me pull up. Okay. I got five questions and a bonus question. Gotcha. Okay. Lightning round question number 1. No context. Seattle, Green Bay, Atlanta, or Carolina? Carolina. Okay. Um, number two, a favorite stadium to play in? Uh, Lambeau Field. 
Lambo. I've, I've been there in the freezing snow. It was very cold. Um, best NFL uniforms. The best NFL uniforms. Wow. Hmm. Come on, Dad. Lightning round. Uh, there's Man, only one I, right answer here. I'm going to see if you get this. There's... Wow. Um, I have none. Tampa Bay. Okay. I'll just throw out one. Tampa Bay. Oh, man. Okay. The, the, well, the right answer was a Chargers a baby blue, but that's okay. I don't uh, like the new helmet logo that they put on there, but, but go ahead. Yeah, no, I understand that. I, I yeah. understand that. Um, okay. Best food city. You've been all over the country. Best food city. New Orleans. Mm, there you go. Um, okay. You've had 57 interceptions in your career is, is my understanding. Favorite interception. What's the one that you're like, ah, I'm so glad I got that. That just okay. This is my favorite interception of all time. I'm playing against the Oakland Raiders. We're playing down in Oakland. Um, mm-hmm. Jay Schrader is the quarterback. Uh, Alexander is running a, a post on my right-hand side. As <laughs> I drop back, uh, Jay Schrader let that ball fly. And as I'm running, uh, this is the fastest guy in the National Football League. I had to dive. And I dove in the air as he was about 50 yards down the field. I dove in the air, stretched out, reaching for the ball. I catch the ball. Uh, I roll on the ground. I get back up. I come back and I fake out about three or four or five people, whatnot. I get my maybe like maybe 25, 30 yards. I turn to the side and Ronnie Lott, who was one of my favorite players <laughs> of all time, mm-hmm. is on the sideline looking at me and he's applauding me. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, that he's, is, one of my, he's one of my favorite. Ken Easley and Ronnie yeah. Lott, favorite of all time in safeties. That is so cool. That's a great story. Okay, um, bonus question. Uh, you were a commentator for the Panthers for the last, what was it, 13 years, six years? 16. 16 years? Okay, so where is Cam Newton going to end up? I think that Cam Newton's going to end up with the Patriots. I think that he's going to find himself with the New England Patriots. And if he does that, you better watch out. This young man can flat out play some football. He had 240 touchdowns, 58 of them which he ran in. I'm telling you, this dude is an absolute beast. And I know he's hurt and came from being hurt. He is chopping at the bit. And I tell you this, he has that mentality to be robbed. He wants to prove everybody wrong, that they're doubting him, that he can't come back. He's going to come back with a vengeance, and he wants to prove everybody wrong. He's going to look for a situation where he can become a starting quarterback, and the Patriots may offer that to him. I like that. I've seen some articles in the last two days about the Broncos being a big, uh, a big draw, possibly. So I'm mm-hmm. just, uh, yeah. But the Patriots, I, the Patriots. I, 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 I can I, see I, that. It'll be cold for him, but he can play. <laughs> That's so cool. Well, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. Love this conversation. And thank you for, for how you have parented Brandon. We love having him on the team as a uh, host on this podcast. Uh, he's just, and he, especially in the last few weeks, uh, he's just step up as, as a leader in sharing and talking with such wisdom and grace it has just been so cool. And so I appreciate him as a friend and as a coworker. So I want to thank you for that. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. I appreciate being on the podcast too. Yeah. I mean, this is really, really, <laughs> this is a really great time for me. Thank you very much. Pretty cool opportunity. No doubt. If you live, in the Charlotte area, you're on a morning show there, correct? So you can check. Yes, I do a show, show. a show called Charlotte Today. 
It's on from 11 to 12. Um, and right now we're, in, we're doing the home edition. We're doing Zoom calls. I was going to say, you're doing it from uh, home now, right? Yeah. Yeah, so I'm, I'm really uh, a co-host with Colleen Odegaard. And it's, it's a WCNC NBC affiliate. And it's a variety show. And so I get a chance to go ahead and hang out and be foolish. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I like yeah, it. So. <laughs> That's cool. Anything you want to end with, Brandon? No, I think this is, this has been really fun. This has been really cool for me to um, be a part of doable discipleship, but also have uh, my dad jump on the show and so cool. be a part of it and share his wisdom and be, be with us. So that's, this is a really cool, cool moment for me. That's so awesome. All right. We're going to play some golf uh, later on and I'm, I'm going to beat it. his head in. What? Not during work hours. Not during, not during work hours. Not during work hours. <laughs> we're fine Saturday morning. It's That's all be Rob and I'm breaking heads. That's the best. <laughs> all right, buddy. I love all it. Right. All right. Thanks, guys. We will uh, talk to you again uh, on Tuesday. We have another episode coming out in our time series. Um, I think that one is a conversation with Tom Holiday. Yes, Tom Holiday. And, and those were recorded back when I was uh, on baby leave. So I, I'm not on that one. And then we'll be back again uh, with another special conversation next Thursday. Um, or Friday, you know, whenever they come out. Um, so yeah, uh, thanks for listening. We love you guys and uh, we will talk to you again next week. See you guys soon. If you enjoyed this episode, consider giving us a rating or a review on iTunes. If you do, you'll help other people find us in the future. You can also listen to these episodes on YouTube. Just subscribe to the Saddleback Church YouTube channel for these conversations, plus lots of other video content. And if you are already listening to us on YouTube, subscribe to the Doable Discipleship Podcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting app so you can listen in the car or wherever else you go. Don't forget to visit saddleback.com slash doable to check out all of our previous episodes. And go to saddleback.com slash grow to find spiritual growth resources and view a calendar of upcoming events. Lastly, you can always get in touch with us by emailing maturity at saddleback.com. Send us your thoughts, send us your questions, your Bible questions, your life questions, whatever. Who knows? Your question might just inspire an upcoming episode. Thanks again for tuning in to Doable Discipleship. I'm Jason Whelan, and I hope you'll join us again next week. Mm-hmm.